Ready? Okay. Yeah. Yes, I am ready. We are starting the podcast. Ready? Okay. Why are you talking? Don't talk like that. What if I just talked like that for the rest of the Ready? Okay. What's Because so people accuse you of having vocal fry. You don't even have vocal fry, do you? I don't think I do. Yeah. But I could if I wanted to talk like this. Wait, can you talk like that? No, hold on. Hey, hold on. Brace. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Brace, you look so good. <laughs> Thank you. My favorite way to do vocal you sound fry. beautiful. My favorite way to do it. My favorite was like whenever I would do my impression of the Kardashians. Yeah. This is kind of old school. So this isn't like an updated impression. But it would be like, it would be like. So they would always say, like, thank you really quickly after they were, like, asking a server, like, at a restaurant or something. So be like, mm-hmm. can I get a glass of water? Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. So I'll have a chicken Caesar salad. Thank you. Yeah, that's sick. Got to let that I, kind of death rattle, the Kardashian death rattle. Thank you. If that's what vocal fry is, you don't have vocal fry. Oh, and of course you should not. So uh, let me tell you this. The haters that say Liz has vocal fry, you're just sexist. They literally just don't have a palate. They don't know how to differentiate women. Yeah, which, you know what? Fair enough. Ready? Okay. Look, the ladies will know. I've watched th- three And movies. the gays. The gays will know, too. Triple X. Well, all our fans are gay. Oh, Hello, tri- everyone. Hello. <laughs> I'm Liz. My name is Brace. Of course, we are joined by producer Young Jomsky, and yeah. the podcast is called One, Two, Three... True or not? Gotcha. Oh, you you thought I was going to do it, didn't you? <laughs> Hell no. You did get me. Yeah, I got you. That was funny. Uh-huh. Hey, big announcement. Yes, Liz is leaving the podcast. <laughs> That's so mean. What? She's leaving the podcast because... I'm getting pushed out. She is becoming... Which is why you'll be hearing from my lawyer. Yes, I will. Her lawyer that's representing her as head of Terramar. Oh She's taken God. over, and Liz <laughs> has become an NGO person. That name yes. was a really good one. And frankly, we're here to save the oceans. Yes. Stop drinking that shit. Yeah. Don't drink it. Because also, yeah, you're not supposed to do that just before I don't, got an uh, NGO You can business. drink salt water. Don't. Okay. I don't really don't think we need to rehash this every other week. You can definitely drink salt water. This is like it's the water. Trump staring at the... Remember when he stared straight at the eclipse and or look, whatever it was? And, he, and the thing is, people were like, he's so stupid for doing that. He was fine. How else are you going to see it? He was he was totally fine. How else are you going like, to look? Let's go out I mean, and look at the eclipse. But and then you're not supposed to look at it. Yeah, it's no Trump. Makes was, no everyone sense. else looking at their phone or on the ground and stuff. Trump was just was like, yeah, what's wrong with looking at the blocked out sun? Yeah. Like men and women have been doing for centuries. I, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, but the family member of a well known uh, crust band went blind from looking at the sun. Wait, really? Yeah. yeah. How long did he look at it? Un- unknown. I just Probably found too this information long. out last year. Here's my thing. Just look at it real quick. Never want to do it again. I look at the sun constantly. That's this how is, you get your shit. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's how you, that's how you, if you're on drugs and you want to like, you people to look normal. Those are, that's 
how you say pupils where I'm from. Um, just stay, stay at the sun for a while. You're good. This is all awful. Here's the thing. What? We actually do have an announcement. Yes. And it is nothing that we have said up until now. And the big announcement is, drum roll please. We're going on tour. We are going on tour. Did we not announce that yet? On the, I not on this episode. I, you know what? If we did, podcast. don't remember. We definitely, I Don't believe. care. You know what? I'm reminding then. And uh-huh. if you forgot, you're going to be thankful that I'm saying it now, which is we're going on tour. Yes. Yes. Just like in the last two episodes we told you, we are going to... <laughs> do you not remember giving the dates in the last episode? I thought it was just Patreon episode? episode that we did that. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Oh um, my God. So I was right. No, but we did Big announce announcement. It. We did announce it. And we also announced it on listeners. all of our social media. Well... Hey, to all of our friends without smartphones and, you know, don't They're have internet accounts. They're listening to a podcast, Liz. On their computers. That's actually how my dad does it. Really? Yeah. That's so gentle. See, I like that. So to all our friends and little buddies out there who didn't know, like I said, we're going on tour. That's right. For like a whole month. Indeed we are. In fact, this is, I am, can't wait until I can find the email with the precise dates that I can read oh my God. off. No, that You is, had one job. I actually have a, a lot of jobs. I'm a father. I'm a lover. <laughs> Ew. What? Those are two separate jobs. You are not either of those things. I have them. I have them. So we're going to buy rack. <laughs> we are. On Can you just say the normal name? Byrack, the most the, the most bisexual city in America, Chicago, on November first at Talia Hall. Uh, what? You gotta up the enthusiasm here. You Yo, sound- we are going to we're swinging both ways out there to <laughs> Chicago to Byrack on on November first at Talia Hall. Ticket link. Oh, I can't. That's like a hyperlink in there, but it'll be in the description. And then. On November 3rd, 2022, in Silly Delphia, uh, Jokesylvania, we are playing at the <laughs> Union Transfer. That's Philadelphia for people who just had to think about it for too long. And then on 11-4-2022, that is the fourth day of November, we are going to... Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. At the I forgot. Black Cat. Classico. Good I feel m- like the Black Cat is a Classico venue. We are playing there with SOA. <laughs> Uh, the Teen Idols, uh, Discharge, <laughs> and Madball. I'm not looking forward to that show because you were going to make DC Hardcore jokes the no, entire show. No, I'm not. DC, DC Hardcore is not that good. Um, but you know what is good? New York Hardcore. Because we will be appearing with the band Agnostic Front on 11-6-2022 at the Bowery Ballroom in New York City. That's the sixth day of November at the Bowery Ballroom. Agnostic Front will be opening for us. If you don't see them on the flyer, then uh, whoops. The next day, we are going to BK, where I was born and raised, along with many celebrities and well-known figures, on the seventh day of November at the Music Hall of Williamsburg. You are saying this like so that no one will ever retain any of this information. And then the day after that, we're also going to be in Brooklyn, but in a different part of it, at the Bell House. Yeah, over- our old favorite Gowanus. Uh-huh. And you better go on as and get your ass to that show. <laughs> you, better, you better do that. And then the next 
Not even the next day whatsoever. In fact, a full week later, we will be appearing in Los Angeles, California, City of Angels, in the state of California, and we are playing at the Terragram Ballroom. Yes. Downtown. Mm-hmm. And it's downtown, right? You know what I heard about many of you listeners out there in Los Angeles? That you definitely have a lot of room for balls. We are going to be playing there the next day as well at the Terragram Ballroom. That is on 11-16-2022. Just a mere three days later, in November 19, oh 2022, we are playing in Seattle. With Soundgarden at N-E-U-M-O-S. Oh, my God. So I'm told. doing this so weird? I'm told that is pronounced Nemos. Is it Nemo? Yeah. I've been saying Noimos. Yeah, you've been saying, you think that because I've been saying that since we booked the show. You know why? Because if you see Noi, it's like the band, it's Noi. Noi. Noimos. Yeah, Noimos. That's the that's the Mexican version of Noi. <laughs> yeah, if it's if it's spelled Nemo, first of all, there's a movie uh-huh. Finding it's Finding, finding Nemo. Nemo's. Well, maybe they tra- they trademarked it. N E M O. Anyway, what day is that? Say it normal that's way. That's on November nineteenth. There you go. If you want me to say it normal, write it normal. Don't write it with a bunch of numbers. I didn't shit. write that. That's true. Also, you can use your brain. Two days later, we will be overdosing on heroin in. A, Portland, Oregon, <laughs> on November 21st, 2022. That's an angel number. At Mississippi Studios. That is M-I-S-S-I-S-S-S-I-P-P-I. There you go. And guess what? I will piss not only in your eye, but all over your fucking face. Because we're doing there another show there the next day, too. <laughs> At Mississippi Studios on 11-22-22. The devil number. And then, to round all this out, just a mere three days later, on uh, uh, <laughs> November 26th. November 25th. November 25th. Well, gotcha. You did on November get me. 25th, in Slam Francisco, uh, Skankafornia, we are playing at the Great American Music Hall, where I actually once went to a bar mitzvah. That's so crazy that we're playing there. That's so crazy that it's they did a bar cool. mitzvah there. Is, are all those places still open? Like Edinburgh, is that still open? Edinburgh Castle? Yeah, I would. Yeah, it is. I'm like thinking about that area. What about no Hemlock? First place closed. I went to heroin was is two blocks from there. Well, I don't want to go there. Hemlock's closed though, right? Hemlock is not only closed but demolished. Damn, they salted the earth. And then after that, wow. Oh no, Liz, do you see what it says here? It says that you're going to Johnny Cash style play San Quentin Prison all by your lonesome. <laughs> and it says that, oh, in fact, it just says from 1127 San Quentin, and then there's just a, a hyphen, and then it says question mark, question mark, question mark, but Liz only. So it appears that Liz will be unfortunately be in a federal prison for the rest of her life. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. Yes. and if you Because <laughs> wonder- that means I'll be away. From you. Yes. Unfortunately, they have added podcasting equipment to the prison. So you will be doing this remote. One thing we have to mention. Uh-huh. I'm gonna is kill- that Brace is making many jokes, but we actually do have a big opening act for all of our shows. Mm-hmm. That's right. Live sets from Young Chomsky at every single show before and after Soundgarden's performance. <laughs> That's true. Not only will you be able to see Chris Cornell, but you'll actually be able to see Young Chomsky come out, join Chris Cornell on guitar, and then you will see Soundgarden leave the stage to the smaller green room than us, 
and you will see Young Chomsky perform a full set of not only songs you know and love from the show, but songs that you've never heard before in your life. Yes. That part is not a joke. And fully nude. It's crazy. His shit's going to be, as he says it, all over the fucking place. Uh, he says, he says, he says, you're going to think this is a damn airfield from all the shit taking off and flying around like a rotor. Um, he also says he might drop a few bombs. If you know what I mean? And he says that soon. Okay. Gonna, you both are shaking your heads. Yeah. Like. We're both kind of, we're both kind of glaring right okay. now. Okay. Anyway, guys, we're going on tour. All this information, it's a lot easier to read and understand and digest in the inter- in internet form. We'll link to it. Yes. We want to see you there. Yes. Tickets are on sale. Uh, wait, now. What the month? 7 Is yes. that? Oh my God. Is that today? I don't know, but they're Dep- on sale. Depending on when we put this episode out, that's true. Yes, they are <laughs> on sale, and they they do sell out quick. Just like me, the moment anyone offers me money to leave this podcast. <laughs> With all that, we can now move on. Yes. So today we're talking about the uh, circumstances surrounding the assassination of Japanese Prime Minister <laughs> Shinzo Abe. What? You could now you get serious. Oh, I'm sorry. Today, we're talking about the circumstances surrounding the assassination of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. See, it sounds a lot better when you act normal. So maybe. Yeah, well, you never can act normal, which is why we got a great guest on. Yes. To help explain what's going on. And I think we should just get into it. Yes. Let's, let's, Let's roll the Japanese mini cassette. All right, ladies and gentlemen, having surmounted a veritable Mount Fuji of technological problems, <laughs> we finally have captured Timothy Shorrock. Shorrock, even look at this. I can't even do it right this time. Mispronounce the last name. It's a uh, difficult one. You did, you did good. Uh, a DC-based journalist who grew up in Japan and in South Korea during the Cold War. He's been writing about the region since the late 1970s, and he is here to really help us try to tie together the different strands of that history that basically culminated in Shinzo Abe's assassination at the hands of a former member of the Self-Defense Forces and his homemade projectile weapon. I hesitate to call it a shotgun. Um, Timothy, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for coming on. So for those of you who have not been following the news, Shinzo Abe was shot dead on July 8th in Nara, Japan, um, by a member of a former member of the Japanese Self-Defense Forces. They're kind of Navy. I mean, I don't know if that's technically the word to call it, but it's functionally a, a Navy, if a small one. Um, and it later came out that, or it has emerged, and more details have emerged, that it is ostensibly due to the shooter's mothers having given the Unification Church, a.k.a. the Moonies, a substantial amount of money. Um, And that, every single part of that, is really a summation of so much of Japanese and Korean post-war history. Um, And Timothy, I wanted to ask, like, what were your kind of initial reactions to something like this happening? Well, of course, I was shocked that someone would be assassinated in Japan uh, by... Gunfire. I mean, the guns are so rare in Japan, and mm. gun violence is is almost a virtually unknown. I think 
I think in 2021, there was one person killed by a gun in Japan. Uh, and, you know, we have mass shootings every day here in the United States. So just, you know, that was shocking in itself. Uh, and, you know, the, it was a very public assassination. And, and, and so I was you know, shocked like a lot of people just to see that. Um, but, you know, Abe has generated a lot of, you know, in, intense positive and negative in Japan. And so he's, you know, he's a very prominent politician. He's long, Japan's longest serving prime minister. Uh, he was hoping to be, return as prime minister again. And he's the leader of the largest faction in the so-called liberal democratic party, which has been in, in power in Japan basically since 1955. So this was a pretty shocking event to me. It was it, there's been other assassinations uh, of public figures in Japan, but the one I remember most uh, was in 1960 when a socialist leader was assassinated on live television with a mm. right wing guy with a big knife that was about 14 inches long and just stabbed this guy on TV while you know, millions of people were watching. Uh, so these kinds of things, have, you know, have been ha have happened periodically in Japan, but it's usually knives, not guns. So it's funny you actually mention a stabbing, and especially a stabbing of a political figure, because Shinzo Abe's grandfather, Nobosuke Kishi, was also stabbed, uh, I believe, when he was prime minister. And I think it's, it's kind of hard to sort of explain who Shinzo Abe was without, I think, first talking about his grandfather. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I think his grandfather was pretty emblematic of a certain generation of, of Japanese right-wing politicians in that he came out of this like hard right milieu uh, from World War II. He was a war criminal. Uh, and he really rose to power, you know, much like a lot of ex-Nazis in, in, in West Germany, kind of on the back of anti-communism. Well, he, he was, you know, World War II, he was actually the Minister of Commerce in the Tojo cabinet that declared war on the United States. And Kishi was also responsible for running uh, the Japanese colony of Manchukuo, which was, you know, after they invaded Man Manchuria in the 1930s. Uh, he ran that. And Man Manchuria, of course, was linked to Korea, which was Japan's colony for 35 years. And especially the northern part of Korea, with its, with its heavy industry, uh, was linked very closely to Manchuria. And so he was in charge of this whole colonial operation, which was, you know, very cruel and violent toward Chinese and Koreans. And uh, he was, uh, after the war, uh, he was arrested as a war criminal and, and, and put into a, a, a termed a class A war criminal, meaning he was a high level uh, mm -hmm. war criminal. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with quite a few others, uh, th there was, you know, for a couple of years, and, you know, first of all, you know, the U.S. occupied Japan in 1945, September 1945, after the after the unconditional surrender, and General Douglas MacArthur was was in charge of the U.S. occupation, who had spent much of his youth in the Philippines and his adulthood in the Philippines, you know, sort of running uh, uh, what was essentially a colony in the United States. A sat rap, I would call him. I'd call him a sat rap. <laughs> sat rap. Uh, you know, so he's familiar with like sort of American, you know, military control over another country. Uh, and, you know, but, but they had a mandate, you know, from the, the, you know, President Truman and the government, U.S. government to, 
you know, uh, basically destroy militarism in Japan. And uh, that meant like dismantling these giant Zaibatsu, these conglomerates mm -hmm. that had profited from the war. And of course, you know, fueled and financed uh, Japanese overseas expansion and, and then, then invested in all those places, uh, bringing in slave labor from Korea to work in their factories. And they, you know, they started dismantling these. They, you know, uh, the occupation ruled indirectly through the Japanese government, which is something a lot of people don't know. It didn't have absolute power to just make declarations and have them become law. They had to be passed by the Japanese government, which was kept in place by the United States, including with a lot of the you know wartime politicians who were in that were in that you know government in that assembly. Uh, but 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 they pretty much had to pass certain things, including the Constitution uh, that had a peace clause in it that Japan would not take up arms again uh, as a way to resolve international problems. And uh, you know, women were given the right to vote. Uh, labor unions were released from very you know strict controls, and labor unions began to organize like wildfire uh, in the immediate you know, years after the occupation. And a lot, you know, even a lot of Japanese leftists and communists at the very beginning felt like the occupation was somewhat of a liberating force. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's when, you, when, you, when you read about that period from the point of view of, of Japanese, uh, you know, the, the, the union organizing was incredible. I mean, like workers really... Uh, you know, took power and like they when when business owners wouldn't, you know, wouldn't invest and wouldn't keep the factories going. The workers took them over and ran them themselves. There was this really strong sense of worker power. And of course, people mm -hmm. were looking for, you know, answers after their empire had collapsed after 5000 years right. and, you know, wanted, you know, something, something different. And so, you know, people began. Uh, but also people wanted to get rid of these militarists who had run Japan, sure. get rid of that whole politics. So it was, you know, for the couple of years, it was very positive. But, you know, during that time, of course, Japanese were flat on their backs. I mean, it's hard to describe, you know, I mean, Japan was completely destroyed. Nearly every yeah. city except Kyoto was completely demolished by American firebombing led by General Curtis LeMay. Uh, and, you know, of course, they bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki with atomic mm. weapons. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of suffering and, and, you know, that's, that's, you know, the occupation, you know, brought in food and, and then tried to sort of restore some kind of, you know, bring back some democratic institutions to Japan. And it, and it worked for the first couple of years. Uh, yeah. You say for the first couple of years. And I think that that, you know, we kind of want to key in on that moment because right. I th think the best way to put it, and I think this is how you put it in your writing in the past is that there was a real reversal of course, where right. it was like, you know, the, the, that occupation and, and kind of, you know, I don't know, resetting, rebuilding of the Japanese, of Japanese society and the economy and, you know, post-war and post-war situation, like completely and totally turned around with now the, the U S looking at the dual threats from the Soviet union and China. Right. Like starting around, you know, 1947, uh, the occupation forces themselves and MacArthur, uh, got, got to be really concerned about the rash of strikes and, worker organizing that was going on. And in that, that spring, uh, there was going to be a, a massive uh, 
general strike by by leftist uh, public employee unions that mm-hmm. ran a lot of the trains and the, you know, the public institutions. And MacArthur, you know, outlawed that general strike, and that was kind of the beginning of the of the reversals. But the the critical part in the reversal of these reforms was played by a group of former American uh, diplomats in Japan, including the former U.S. ambassador to Japan, and all these business groups, business people that had investments in pre-war Japan, uh, like you know General Electric, for example, was the largest uh, investor in Japan up to up to World War II, and so the. Big U.S. financial interests had major interests in Japan, the Morgan interests in, in particular, J.P. Morgan, uh, which mm-hmm. owned GE. Uh-huh. And, and these companies, together with these very conservative American politicians who felt like, you know, if we could just remove the rot at the very, very top of Japan then uh, and work with all the same people that were there during the war, then if we could just remove those top nasty people, then everything, Japan would become a, a good ally. And, and they began to really focus on like restoring the Japanese economy and then also building up Japan as an ally against, as you said before, the Soviet Union, communist movements in, in China and Korea and Southeast Asia. And they wanted, you know, to incorporate Japan into the, you know, growing militarization of of U.S. policy toward communism. And, you know, Truman, of course, declared the Truman Doctrine in 1947, mm-hmm. you know, intervened in Greece and other places in Europe, undermined, you know, de- democratic uh, elections in, Europe, in Western Europe to make sure the communists didn't win. And there was this whole shift in American policy in the growing Cold War. And at that time, a lot of the prisoners who had been uh, people like Kishi, uh, were re- released from prison, and the people they had that had been in jail during World Two, World War Two, such as the leaders of the Communist Party, were put back in prison. Yeah, and, and classic move. Classic move, and <laughs> uh, it's all linked. You know, it, what's important for people to understand is that what was going on in Japan at the time was also closely, very much closely linked to what was going on in Southern Korea at the time. Mm-hmm. Because, Absolutely. You know, you know the, the U.S., uh, you know, they occupied Japan, of course, but they occupied other parts of the Japanese empire, right? And so Korea was divided at the very last day, almost the last day of World War II, you know, over in a basement office at the White House down the street. And they just they drew the line to 38th parallel, and they said this, you know, the Soviets will take the north. This is part of an agreement they had reached with Stalin uh, months before that the Soviet Union would would occupy the northern part of Korea, and the U.S. would occupy the southern part of Korea. Uh, but you know, they didn't try to bring democracy to southern Korea like they did in Japan. Instead, they were immediately faced by a very you know anti-colonial. Uh, movement, uh, left-wing, communist-led, anti-colonial movement in Southern Korea that wanted a united Korea, independent Korea, wanted to get rid of you know all the people that collaborated with Japan. Instead, the U.S. put in place a government in in Southern Korea that was made up of collaborators, Korean officials who collaborated with the Japanese business people who had profited under yeah. Japanese colonialism. So there were close ties between these Japanese interests in Korea 
and of course Japanese politics. And and uh, that's when you were talking at the beginning about seeing the connections in this assassination. It's all there uh, because, like you know, one of the interesting points of change in the Korean War happened. Uh-huh. One of the, one, you know, a few days before the Korean War actually began, when North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel. John Foster Dulles was at the DMZ. Was not the DMZ. He was at the border with North and South Korea staring down the North Koreans and pledging support to South, South Korea and its struggle against communism. And uh, then his primary reason for going to Asia, though, was to go to Japan and negotiate a peace treaty with Japan that would be uh, a peace treaty that excluded the other war, war powers, including the Soviet Union, uh, China, and England. It was just a, a unilateral peace agreement between uh, U.S. and Japan uh, that was actually negotiated in 1952, and it, and it basically uh, kept American forces in Japan indefinitely. And, of course, they're still there. Yeah, they're, they're there to this very day. And Japan, all you know, the U.S. bases in Japan and Okinawa is the largest concentration of American forces in any country overseas. And then yes. when you combine it with American forces in South Korea, it's, it's a massive you know, military structure. And then, of course, it includes, you know, Guam, where the U.S. has big base mm-hmm. and so on. Um, the Philippines as well. Philippines, I mean, they had well, bases not, there not as big now. of a base, yeah. Not as big, but now they, they, got, they got their guys over there still, but <laughs> yeah, not no, necessarily definitely. big military bases. But anyway, like, in, let's, yeah. to go back to 1955, that period back. of time, so, there was a, so then, you know, after Dulles was in, you know, at the border, went uh-huh. to Tokyo, and it would like two days before the war began, he was meeting with all these Japanese industrialists, members of the of the imperial family, uh, right wing po- po- political people. And a few days after, and in Japan at the time was you know really struggling economically, and the U.S. had sent this banker named Joseph Dodge, who imposed what later became a model in you know the IMF imposing on developing countries, right? Mm. You know. In, Beat inflation by slashing public work, uh, slashing public workers, and and getting you know breaking unions and so on, and that's mm-hmm. and that's what they started to do. And the, but the Japanese economy was really in the doldrums. And what's amazing is you can still see in, in official State Department history on the web and the, uh-huh. the, the Department of State's history, Korea came along and saved us uh, because. Uh, when the Korean War began, and then two days after the North Korean crossed the 38th parallel, Truman yeah. said, "We're you know we're going in there big, right? Uh, massive intervention." And this rejuvenated the Japanese economy. Uh, they still call it in Japan the the the, the Korean War shock, the Korean mm. War the, the Korean War growth. You know, it's just right. uh, it, it, uh, Japanese steel industry, car industry. You know. But by fulfilling American orders for military equipment, the Japanese economy got into full steam. And also the, the world economy was greatly boosted. It's good for uh, business. I mean, that, that's, the, that's, the thing of, business, that's the thing about, about, about Japan. And that's the thing that a lot of, I think, these, like, these, these nationalists and, and fascists, basically, that, that seems to have been a lot of their strategy for the post-war period, where they realize, okay, 
They've sort of made it so that we can't have an army, we can't have a military force. But if we make this alliance with America and they function as essentially like the mil- a military force in alliance with us, we can dominate Asia economically and become right. this huge economic powerhouse. And that will sort of that that will function as as uh you know in place of, of a military hegemony. We'll have that economic hegemony. What it was was a shared hegemony. Yes. So the U.S. supplied the military part of the empire, the bases and soldiers. Uh, Japan was sort of the economic backbone of this. So it was a kind of jointly run U.S.-Japan empire, but of course with the U.S. completely in charge. Right. Uh, but, but that was the model that was, that was set. And, you know, so basically what happened was, you know, the, 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 the Japanese ruling class that had been in power through the war and that still re- some of whom remain in power after the war, they're like, Okay, well, uh, let's re- let's re- we want to get our empire back, and what they what American officials would call the hinterland, Japan's hinterland, where uh-huh. it could you know export stuff and import sure. stuff from. Right? We have to have that so Japan can survive, uh, and that and that was you know the, and and so Japan became like sort of this economic pillar of U.S. empire in Asia, and it began in Korea because. Uh, you know, what I've found in my research into the National Archives and other archives that I've been investigating over the last couple of years is that, you know, the, the U.S. was talking about bringing back Japan into Korea as early as like 1947. I mean, mm. you know, two years after a war against a country <laughs> that had cruelly colonized, I mean, just very yeah. cruel yeah. colonization, right? And And the U.S. wanted Japan back because they assumed that Korea would forever be divided and that South Korea could not exist without, you know, Japanese support. So they began to, you know, seek this early on. And what made it possible, there was a dictator that the U.S. helped install, Sigmund Rhee in Korea, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he was really anti-Japanese. That was a problem for the U.S. Yeah. And he was This overthrown. is a constant problem. Yeah, yeah, it's always a problem. It's a funny, like, irony for the kind of the U- United States plans kind of always going awry because you actually can't, it's, it's... <laughs> There's some wacky dictator that gets in the way, right? Yeah. But, but he, Rhee was really, he would always like attack the U.S. even while he was getting all its aid mm. and stuff like that. Uh, but he, you know, one of the sort of big moments of my life was when I was in South Korea in 1960, April 1960. Uh, I was nine years old, but I, you know, I certainly remember it very well and, and made a, you know, cut out clippings of the newspaper when this Sigmund Rhee was overthrown in the yeah. revolution. And there was a, a year of year after that when, when, when uh, people were, you know, trying to, they want Korea to be reunified. And there was this big push, progressive left-wing politics from 60 to 61. And then in 1961 in South Korea, Park Chung-hee, who was a general, who had been trained in the Japanese Imperial Army mm-hmm. and all his officers and all the leading forces in the leading generals in the Korean, South Korean Army had all been trained in the Japanese military during World War II. They became the core of the South Korean military. He declared martial law in 61 and took over. And he, he was a military dictator for you know 18 years until he was assassinated. But getting back to Japan... This this long wish for the U.S. by the U.S. to get Japan back into Southern Korea 
came to fruition under this military dictatorship uh, mm. when in 1965 there was a normalization treaty signed yeah. between South Korea and Japan. And that was uh, that brought back in the form of reparations, but it was just basically capital, you know, financing, yeah. capital investment. That was the first, uh, you know, that laid the seeds and the, the capital for the Korea's uh, initial spurt of export growth in the late 60s and, and 70s. And it just continued through the 70s. But but so, th- you know, that's where they were linked. And these politicians, and, you know, around Park Chung-hee. And, of course, in 1960, there was Kishi. And then his bro- he was followed by his brother, Sato. Uh, they all had very, very close ties with the Korean right and military and the and the corporations who had collaborated with Japan. And of course, binding them all was this unification church, you know, Sung Myung Moon. I was about and to say. So yeah. you're, you're, you're you're talking about <laughs> the. Uh... You're talking about the the revolution, or not the excuse me, not the revolution, the coup by Park Chung Hee. Well, a lot of the people that participated in that were members of the Unification Church, and following that coup, I mean, the Unification Church basically became a major tool of the Korean CIA, the KCIA, which right. I think we last talked about in our episode about yeah. K-pop. Yeah, um, seriously, I was <laughs> just thinking. They, I was like, "Wow, it's been a minute." They have a they have a thing or two to to do with that as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the 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 Unification Church basically became a tool of not only like influence operations, which is sort of what they're most famous for in the U.S., but they really became leaders in the global anti-communist movement and really spearheaded oh, yeah. you know organizations like the World Anti-Communist, Communist League, which is League. yep come up a lot on this because imagine for those of you who have never listened to one of our episodes that that mentioned this storied organization imagine you took basically everybody who killed peasants jews uh or any kind of minority did any kind of genocide all of the worst guys from world war ii and then the people who really wanted to be like them in the post-war period imagine you put them in a kind of rotary club International. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, the fast fascist Justice League. <laughs> yes. Right, yeah. That's just, what it was. And they had like obscure fascists in there too. Yeah. They had oh, like yeah. Albanian, like fascists <laughs> from countries of like two million people in that motherfucker. And and the Unification Church was a huge part of it, along of course with the with the, the KMT out of Taiwan, a huge part of that. Right. Taiwan. At that you know, it was just at the time it was like the World Anti Communist League, South Korea. You know, elements in Japan, Taiwan, they're all bound together. And I remember in the late 60s, uh, my, you know, my dad, uh, when he was at this university in Tokyo in, in, in the late 60s, uh, he had he had actually, when, when he was working as a church relief worker uh, administrator, he went to Vietnam in 1962 on behalf of the World Council of Churches and came back and said, you know, we shouldn't do anything. We, there, we churches should not be helping the South Vietnam government because there's a counterinsurgency going on, and and he really turned against the, the Vietnam War. And he actually led uh, in 1968. We had a demonstration of Americans against the war in Vietnam, downtown Tokyo. Uh, but we, were, he, my dad, was so attacked by World Communist League and all these kind of people. They'd write letters to the editor of the English language paper. So I'm very familiar with that that kind of that whole milieu of politics. Yeah, but it was really uh, you know so like uh, there was this anti-communist you know alliance between these governments. 
but then, you know, the, the U.S. began to be, especially particularly toward Japan, when Nixon became president, there was all this protectionism in the U.S., right? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Japan's taken over our car industry, steel industry, and we got to stop this. And, and uh, because, you know, Japan had basically unfettered access to the U.S. market and as in return for hosting all these American forces. And so Nixon, I mean, Japan's supposed to be this really close ally, right? Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know, after the war, all the LDP and all the businesses that supported LDP, they really wanted to get back into China. But they couldn't because, you know, the U.S. didn't even recognize China. And so Japan, mm-hmm. LDP wouldn't recognize China either. And then Nixon suddenly announces he's going to go meet with Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai. And he gave the LDP, Sato, he gave him 15 minutes notice. Of this, <laughs> of this massive change in policy, right? That and does like, feel very <laughs> Nixonian. I, 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 very I, I, much I so. forgot to mention, I'm touching down in Beijing at 15. You guys are good to go. Don't worry about it. Yeah, and don't worry. We're, we're still here for you. But like, um, drunk uh, off the, his the, ass, the, probably. The, the story is that he, Sato broke down and wept. You know, he was he was so upset by by this. But of course, after that, you know, Japan, uh, you know, open open relationship with China and. Lots of Japanese businesses went in, but the, the 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 point. My point is that you know this LDP that's been in power for so long, mm-hmm. and especially Abe, uh, these are so they're like oh, such obsequious pro-American. They, you know they they never stand up to the U.S. They will do whatever the U.S. wants basically. And what's what's the, the situation is epitomized by the fact that U.S. military in Japan has basically, uh, you know complete access to Japanese skies with aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been reports in the Japanese newspapers recently, uh, particularly the Asahi newspaper, with showing these photographs of American military helicopters flying low over Tokyo. And like no Japanese aircraft are allowed to do that. But Americans, yeah. fine, you know. I mean, it, how can you call a country sovereign when American military has so much power? I mean, can you imagine being in New York and having like, you know, French helicopters flying around Manhattan and like American, American can't, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of obscene, but like American politicians love the obsequiousness of the Japanese LDP. And that's why everybody from Stephen Miller to Hillary Clinton, to Donald Trump, to Biden, to blank and all these people are just rapturous about Abe as this great Mm -hmm. champion of, you know, and how he Obama, tried to, even, uh, I mean, oh, Obama, everybody, best friends, you know, all, all the Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's it's just nauseating to watch because I guess they just uh, I mean what what makes me really angry about it is that they know very well, especially people like you know Clinton who've served at high levels in the U.S. government. Uh, they know very well from intelligence they could get access to of how. Uh, you know, like like Abe's position on, you know, the Japanese war crimes, denial, 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 yep. you know, calling, you know, ridiculing the idea that these comfort women who are so-called comfort women who are kidnapped to serve in Japanese comfort stations where they serve Japanese soldiers all over the war front, you know, they deny this. And that was the big, you know, the, the big point of the right wing of the LDP led by Abe was that, you know, Japan's problem in World War II was not 
you know, human rights violations and its bloody invasions of slaughter of people in China, uh, Nanking massacre and that kind of thing. The problem was that they attacked the United States. So, you know, Mm. everything else, fine. We did so great in Asia, you know, Japanese, the Korean people loved us for what we did and so on and so forth. And so they're, they're the denialists. I mean, Japan never went through a kind of denazification that, that Germany did. Well, I, I would yeah. say that the German denazification was a limited sort of a very, very limited to a select few people right. who might not be of any use in the post-war effort. Nevertheless, the German schools are, you know, very, they, 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 yeah. they, they will not let you, you can't promote Nazis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is true. Yeah. That is a major difference in that, yeah. in that it is, it is, it is illegal to promote that stuff. I mean, very illegal, even if you, you know. Or in another country, they will block your website if it if you you know right. think you're promoting that. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, it's like it seems to be really really actually pretty mainstream, uh, especially in the nationalist mm-hmm. movement. And and you know I know you know I'm no by no means even not an let, not an expert, let alone I, I mean, I'm barely even mildly familiar with how Japanese society is structured now. But I do know that like you know there's quite a lot of racism towards Koreans there in oh. the present day. A lot, yeah. Um, and that, like, it is pretty mainstream to essentially believe that, like, yeah, all this talk about comfort women and these rapes and these massacres are, if not overblown, actually totally, totally false and invented to sort of get back at Japan. And, and, and now they have, you know, these Japanese reactionaries have their whole echo chamber in, the, in American academia. You know, you have this yeah. white professor at Harvard who wrote this paper saying, oh, these, you know, they were yeah. just women. They were just working girls, you know. They, they you know, they, they were just trying to do a job. Jesus. And, you know, and, and they just play down the absolute cruelty. I mean, you know, these comfort women were all over, like I said, all over China, all over Okinawa. When U.S. forces yeah. went, went into the Pacific Islands, they, you know, they the comfort women were there. And, 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 and many of them were killed killed by you know u.s bombing and you know during the war they suffered especially in okinawa which was a terrible battle yeah Uh, you know many of these women were were killed along with the japanese forces and and you know to deny them is is just inhumane and you know that's the kind of thing that the feminist you know hillary clinton endorses right i mean i mean it's basically endorsing the kind of denial that goes on in the yeah. ruling party of Japan. And, you know, a lot of Japanese are, are very uncomfortable about it. I mean, they still, they win, they managed to win the pluralities in these votes, but, you know, there's still a segment of Japanese society, old and young, that are ashamed of what they did in World War II and know very well what they did in World War II. And um, I think, you know, one of the big aims of Abe, which he'd never accomplished, was to get rid of the the peace clause article nine of the constitution. Yeah. Uh, and they say, you know, this was imposed by the United States and, and it's, it's, it's kept us from being a you know full scale military power. But, you know, starting in the early seventies, uh, U S officials, U S military and all the think tanks here, uh, really began pressing Japan to, to become more of a military power. And so the U S has been behind these changes as well. Uh, but the the most the most change uh, that Abe could get through was in 2015, seven years uh, what's that eight years ago uh, seven mm-hmm. years ago uh, when they, they 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 passed a law in the Japanese Parliament 
to allow you know, Japanese ships to accompany American ships in overseas conflicts. Mm, mm-hmm. but, and, 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 and that sparked the biggest demonstrations in, yeah. in Japan since the 60s. Uh, so there's still an element of Japanese that uh, don't want this change. And I, and I think you know, Abe had campaigned about now if we win good, win, win big in the next election, uh, we can change, we can get rid of Article 9 and and Kishida, the, the who's the prime minister, and then he said that in, a couple of days ago. He said, you know, they they did win a big majority a couple of days yeah. after he was killed, and so now they have the chance to get rid of this. Uh, it takes a two thirds vote in the upper and lower house in Japan to to alter the constitution, and then it goes to a public uh, plebiscite, and, and so the people have to approve it uh, by a by a simple majority. In the mm, in the population, wow, in the votes, yeah. right? Uh, and it's really hard to know if that'll pass or not. I mean, you can bet that you know the U.S. government and the CIA and everybody that will, will try to you know you know get that passed if it does come to a vote uh, a, a plebiscite. But I don't, I don't, I really don't know if they have the votes to do that among the Japanese people. I mean, I, I sure, I sure as hell hope they don't. Yeah, uh, but they're going to try to ram this thing through, and you know, of course, all the American politicians that wax eloquently about Abe. I mean, they're they're going to say, "See, Japan now really wants to be a good ally of us." You know, they're going to help us, but it's under you know, it's like it's like our it's like a the U.S.'s uh, own army. They have Japanese self defense forces. Uh, Absolutely, it, yeah. And you yeah. know, Japan is still one of the biggest military powers in the world. It's military. Yes. Is very top heavy. In other words, mm-hmm. there's a big officer class, right? Uh, and and they have, you know, they have, of course, they have incredible technology, and they can make all kinds of sophisticated weapons and rockets and so on. Uh, and so, you know, big Japanese corporations are really hungry to get into sure. uh, those kind of those kind of markets. Uh, but I'm I'm really I'm I'm really not sure about the the people that re- that remains to be seen. Well, we mentioned we mentioned just briefly the Unification Church, and there, like when we're talking about the anti-communist league, and I kind of want to like circle back to that because that is okay. at the heart of the assassination story. And it, I mean, my understanding, and you know, we can get into this here, is that the Unification Church also has quite a large presence in Japan. Yes, in daily life, and that like the Japanese. I mean the 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 like that in Japan the, that's like their entire economic base basically. It's weird because Japan is such a. I mean, it's it's, it's ironic that you know yeah. when my parents went there as missionaries, MacArthur had just said you know bring us a thousand missionaries. We you know we Japan has to be Christian to avoid becoming communist. You know we need them to fight the communists, and the the amount of Christians in Japan is about one half of 1% yeah, of the yeah. population, which it was before the war, right? right? It's never, it's never really grown. But if you go to, if you're like, if you're in Tokyo and you're on a, a building and look around Tokyo, you hardly see any churches. I mean, you'll see one or the, one or two. If you go to Korea yeah. and sit in a high building, all you see is crosses and churches yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. 
And it's, we don't have time to go into what the, why that is, but, you know, I'm always astonished when I, when I go to Korea and, you know, the, the amount, the number of Christians there and deep Christian believers. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, so the Unification Church is really, a, it, because the, the, so few Christians in Japan, it's really a cult. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's a cult, it's a right wing cult. And, and, you know, they, they, they try to, you know, influence politics in all kinds of ways. And, and, and they're, they're believers. I mean, like they beg money, apparently this killer's mother, you know what? He, she donated like seven hundred fifty thousand. Well, that's that's it's it's crazy because because Japan uh, is really I mean, so the Moonies get money from all sorts of sources, including <laughs> um, the Yakuza, Japanese intelligence, yeah, at Korean CIA, obviously, but sort of their um, and the good old fashioned American one too, of course. But let's say <laughs> let's yeah, well, of course, but. The the real grassroots fundraising, as far as I've understood it, comes in large part from essentially going door to door in Japan yeah. and finding widows and being like, listen, your husband's in hell. I'm really sorry to tell you this. <laughs> However, for a gigantic monetary donation, I can not only get your husband out of hell, I can get him into heaven. And so it looks like uh, Tetsuya, the killer, his his his... His mother had joined sometime in the 90s following the father's suicide, uh, which is also there's pretty high suicide rates in Japan, too. So, that, again, a lot of these things kind of I mean, it's just a lot of strands of, 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 of Japanese and Korean history coming together um, had donated a huge amount of, of her husband's uh, life uh, life insurance settlement, almost right. three quarters of a million dollars, a right. million yen to the unification church they were able to get some of that back but looks like tetsuya who had been a member of those self-defense forces which is so wild like those very same self-defense forces that um that you know that abe wants to massively and now well now just the make it into a regular army that's what he wants exactly uh you know he he was his family was basically stricken into poverty by this and this is this is i mean this is a story that we 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 sort of being able to piece together here. And the reason I think a lot of people were confused because Abe is not a member of the Unification Church by any means, but the Unification Church has a lot of very high, high profile friends and allies. In a lot of ways, they're kind of like uh, a much scaled up version of the MEK from Iran, where they don't Uh need to get Rudy Giuliani. They can get Donald Trump. Trump. They can get Shinzo Abe to speak at their events. I mean, there was a coronation ceremony they held in D.C. with like senators and congressmen right. where, where, where Reverend Moon was, you know, given a crown. Um, yeah. And and so Abe, uh, you know, it, it, it's it, Abe's. In fact, his grandfather was pretty instrumental in the Moonies rise in Japan and in furthering them for, he was. for Japanese Korean intelligence roles. And then the grandson, Abe himself, you know, a supporter of them. And essentially, it looks like he was killed for it. That's what that's what it looks like. There's all this murky stuff in, in Japanese politics that rarely, you know, rarely comes out. Like you mentioned, Kodama Kodama Yoshio was like this. Yeah, uh, you know, he was Japanese intelligence during the war, and he was a gangster uh, leader of many some of the yakuza. And he was, you know, Kodama was like a go-between between the CIA and 
uh, Japanese leadership. Yeah. You may remember there was a a huge scandal in Japan. The biggest scandal of the post-war history was when Tanaka Kakwe, who was a prime minister a few terms after uh, uh, Kishi, was found you know guilty of uh, being bribed by Lockheed, right? And and that that whole bribery scandal was uncovered uh, here in Washington by the the Senate uh, Committee on Corporations that was chaired by yeah. Senator Frank Church and his investigators. One day, someone showed up with a box of files. You know, they don't even know. They're still not sure where it came from. They had all these files about people like Kodama, who was the middleman for getting the money from Lockheed, whose top executive, by the way, was in the CIA, uh, was was a CIA asset. And uh-huh. they and they, and they actually, you know, put gave money to the sitting prime minister, and he gave a huge deal to Lockheed for this really Incredible. plane, this passenger plane they were building at the time. That if they hadn't gotten orders, it would have, Lockheed would have gone bankrupt. And so Nixon, this was Nixon's way to you know keep them alive. But Kodama was the key guy; he was the middleman, and he he's and they call these people like him Kuromaku, which is like you know they're they're, they're like in these Boonraku plays where people were all black and they're in the shadows. You know, yeah. they're, they're the shadow people behind the, the politics, and it only comes out. At big incidents like this, you know, when the when the Lockheed scandal broke, it just opened the floodgates to this right wing connection between people like Kodama, the Yakuza and and uh, Japan's right wing ruling party. Just the same way now, uh, we'll see how far it goes, is that this relationship with the Unification Church and their right wing in, in a, you know, around Asia is, is being opened up now because of this assassination. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's actually a question I wanted to ask you, too, is, is what do you think uh, the repercussions for this might be in Japanese politics? As you said, there was an election. I mean, Abe was campaigning in an election. There was an election immediately after the assassination. The LDP got a huge right. majority. Um, you know, do you see Abe's assassination galvanizing people to sort of like take up his mantle, essentially, when it comes to remilitarization or any of the policies that, he? you know, I know he was really big into... Well, you know, the Japanese birth rate, obviously, famously not too hot in the past few decades. Um, That was a big thing that Abe championed. There's been an economic downturn for quite a while, too, there. Um, I mean, do you see what what, what sort of repercussions or after effects do you see kind of happening in Japanese politics and society from this? Well, the media media one was this big election victory, which they, you know, they got a big majority because they relied certain some other parties. what the what the LDP government is going to try to do now? Apparently, they're going to have a state funeral for Abe, uh, which is h- highly unusual. They very rarely have these state funerals. Mm. But like the, the, it, it's Japan, the way that the government works at times of crisis and and you know big events like that is they they try to use these uh, like a funeral to to you know push a kind of new kind of politics. Uh, impose mm-hmm. a new kind of politics on the country. So like, you know, when the first, when Emperor Hirohito died, I mean, it, it was just like, you know, the country like shut down for a few days and then they had all these, it, it, it was sort of a way to kind of restore, you know, Japanese might in the people's minds. Right, and this right, kind of right. Thing. But it's elaborate. It involves every aspect of the of the national government. 
And uh, I think that's what they're going to try to do with this funeral, you know, build him up and try to, you know, you know, say, you know, his legacy, he wanted to get rid of Article 9 of the Constitution, and he just wants to make Japan a normal, you know, quote unquote, nation again, and make Japan strong again, you know. And that's what I think that's what they're going to try to do. And that's why they're going to have this state funeral. And, and I, I, you know, it's really hard to say. I haven't lived there for a long time. I have a lot of friends who are still there and have been there, you know, people I went, went to school with, and, you know, when I was growing up. Uh, and and uh, it, it's, it's, and of course, they're like, they can't believe the, the, the adulation that Abe gets here. Right. You know, for a lot of Japanese just despise this kind of right-wing yeah. politics, you know, and just, it just grosses them out. It's, it's sickening. Um, but, but I think that's what the, that's what the government's going to do. I mean, the Japanese state, it's unbelievable how they can mobilize. It's just, you know, if, if, when you're there at times like that, like a state funeral, when, 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 President, the American presidents have visited. I mean, the police all over the country are completely mm-hmm. mobilized. I mean, I remember once when, when I guess it was Reagan was there, this friend of mine uh, who lives in Tokyo, American friend of mine who lives in Tokyo, was in Osaka, you know, farther to the south, and he was stopped on the street by police, and they were asking him who he was, what he was doing there, what he yeah. was planning to do in the next couple. And they do this, you know, everywhere, right? I mean, it's it's really, they can really do this massive mobilization of, of police and security forces and it's it's always there but i think uh, it, it's just it's just i don't i think there's a lot of pe- people in japan uh you know they don't want japan to get involved in a war i mean i mean you know what what are they going to send troops to afghanistan well it's no more pulled out of afghanistan but like a war like that people don't want to have japanese soldiers sent to die with American forces in some American imperial war. I just, I just don't think people want that. Yeah. And, you know, that's what, you know, all the U S politicians that do they desperately want. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the real, the real capital of uh, the empire is here in Washington at places like the center for strategic and international studies, you know, mm-hmm. where all these former high level defense people and military people, uh, you know, I mean, any you know, like there's a picture in the Mainichi story today about Abe, where there's a picture of him talking to the CSIS when he was the last time he was in Washington. They all go there, you know. Yeah. I mean, even Moon Jae-in, when this rather progressive president, yeah, uh, his first trip to Washington, his only public speech except for one speech he gave at the Chamber of Commerce, but the big you know policy speech was at CSIS. And I was there for that speech, and I remember uh, I, I I waited outside because I wanted to 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 because Moon was going to come out, and so I was waiting with the crowd outside. And he was in there for two hours meeting with all of CSIS's board yeah. of directors, you know, Madam Albright, you know, all these all mm. these kind of people from the you know, and so the the pressure from the United it's Japan does not op, LDP does not operate independently they've got this u.s support and pushing them to the right and Mm -hmm. to a militaristic position you know for for decades and and they love it the japanese ldp loves that and and for america you know it gives american empire an enormous 
I mean, all the bases in Japan, uh, you know, they ring China, they focus on North Korea, but they're all linked together. And now yeah. with the South, now they're pushing this South Korean, Japan, U.S. military alliance with a right wing leader in South Korea now who won by the barest of majorities, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're going whole hog into this idea of a U.S. led Japan, Korea, you know, military alliance. triumvirate. So, yeah, it's it, I think that's that's really dangerous. And, Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I just can't see. You know, Japan, I mean, there's talk of like, oh, Japan's, Korea's going to help us in Taiwan, if China yeah, invades yeah, yeah. Taiwan, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's it's kind of scary the direction, you know, this is going, going, going. Absolutely. I mean, I think, too, you look across the world in other places, you're seeing countries remilitarize very quickly. Germany. It, yeah, Germany. countries that I think a lot of people, I mean, you know, you can add Japan to this list because if, if it goes that way, that... Right. It is shocking, you know, people of a certain age, it's shocking to see these countries now back at it, Europe, back at, you know, scaling up armies in countries that it just never seems like a possibility. Um, that, or and never now bringing, yeah, could and be on the table Japan again. And South Korea into NATO. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just it's like, insane. It's, it's, it's just it's, psychotic. It's, it, is, it is insane. It, you know, during the Cold War, there was like, you know, there was NATO, there was the, 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 the Northeast Cito. Asia Alliance, there was CETO in Southeast yeah. Asia. They, they had these kind of local uh, mini empires kind of, yeah. but now they want to make it. It's all spirit. NATO, baby. It's all just NATO. <laughs> one big, one big NATO. Yeah, uh, and, I mean, and uh, it's crazy. I mean, imagine how the, the you know, the Chinese feel seeing yeah. this, this government yeah. that not only hasn't, you know, apologized for the, oh. I, I mean, absolute devastation that they wreaked upon your, you know, the, the colonization, the massacres, starting a war, killing, you know, millions, enslaving millions. people. And, and, and then not only to have, you know, no apology or anything like that, not like an apology is really makes up for that, but like not even acknowledgement, like a, a actually like, well, it, we didn't do those things, but if we did, um, that would have been okay. <laughs> You know, right. and it's not really like you say because you're liars, anyways, who are just trying to hurt Japan's reputation. Or there was a few bad apples among among yeah, you know, right. and they got and they got punished. They got hung. I mean, the U.S. occupation hung seven war criminals. Yeah, uh, that well, about takes care of know, it. But, but that's I, but, all there you know, were, just seven of them. Right, only only seven. I'm sorry, there was only forty people living in Japan at the time, so that's almost <laughs> a quarter of their population. All right, right. but you know, uh, I mean. A lot of Japanese felt like, especially after during the Vietnam War, looking back yeah. at the trials, it's like General Yamashita, who was executed yeah. for for overseeing. There was this big massacre in Manila at, at the end of the year when Japanese yeah. soldiers went on a rampage. You know, and they would say like, "Well, what's the difference between him and General Westmoreland in Vietnam?" I mean, My Lai, all these massacres yeah. that took place. They, they were, you know, those people were tried for the same thing. I mean. Westmoreland wasn't at Eli, but he ordered the strategy that served up Eli, right? And the same yeah. with the, that Japanese general wasn't even in Manila, but he was executed for what his what his forces did. So it was, you know, like it's often been called victor's justice, right? You win the war, you punish you, you punish the people that, that fought you. But you know, the United States has never been in that position, so we don't we never punish our or war criminals or, or anything, you know, if anyone was a war criminal, it's general 
you know, the general that led the bombing, uh, Curtis LeMay, of not That's only Japan. A, of a real son of a bitch, yeah. Not, not only Japan, but Korea. I mean, yeah. North Korea was, there was many, nothing, yeah. nothing mm-hmm. standing. And these people. Which was the aim, to, they, was to blow it off the about. planet. I mean, it's amazing to read these generals. And they say, you know, like, 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 oh, you know, we, we bought the Japanese people, the first bombing of Tokyo in this terrible bombing that killed about 100,000 people on March 15th, mm-hmm. 1945. You know, General May brags later, we boiled them and baked them to death. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, it's you know, tr- I mean, it's it, true. They did. They did. They jumped yeah. in the rivers and the rivers are boiling. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just the most cruel thing. And the thing is, like, what always stuns me about that bombing campaign is that uh, you know, downtown Tokyo with the big feral concrete buildings yeah. was intact, right? It burned down all the wooden houses uh, in all the cities, which is where the working class and poor yeah. people lived, right? That's what burned. But they, but so they after yeah, World War II, it was War terror II, bombing. It was it was a, a unbelievable, and, and like I've been as I've been writing this book, I've been you know researching, uh, you know. Uh, Reports of eyewitness reports about the bombing of Japan and uh, and North Korea, and, and people say the same things. Like first, there was like P fifty one planes would fly over and strafe everybody, you know, and machine gun people, and then the bombers would come over, and then the P fifty ones would come back. That was the, that was a pattern. So people were out in the street, you know, escaping fire, and then these planes come over. And, and machine gun you to death. And a lot of, you know, Japanese people remember that. that maybe yeah. a lot of people are dying out, but there's a lot of people my age that certainly remember the terror of World War II and the Vietnam War and the Korean War. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty hard to get over what, what happened. And so, you know, the kind of reversal that the U.S. is trying to push now and that, that these LDP and Abe-like people are trying to push now is pretty profound reversal of, of, of Japan of, of what it was, you know, since World War II, because it, you know, it has been, it has not gone to war. And, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it, the Japanese people were, were lucky after the war because, you know, they didn't have to put all, they weren't putting all this money into the war machine. Instead, they could build the Shinkansen and they could build fast trains and, you know, this unbelievable transportation network that they yeah. have. And, you know, people, and they, they could have a healthcare system, uh, national healthcare. And, and so they were able to, you know, put their resources elsewhere. But I think a lot of people are now concerned that, you know, there's, there is a military industrial complex in Japan. It's all linked to American companies like Mitsubishi and Boeing and so on. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that, that's a really dangerous trend. And so I don't know, the, certainly the language of American leaders, uh, Biden and, you know, the Democrats in charge now is no just is not going to, is more militaristic than ever. Well, Timothy, I really appreciate having you on. Um, Thank you. You know, you mentioned Yamashita and now I'm thinking of when I, I was recently in the Philippines. And, oh, really? Uh, the big, the big rumor there is, of course, that Marcos Jr. or Bong Bong Marcos has uh, Bong has Yamashita's gold, and that he's actually uh, going to distribute yes. it to the peasantry. Uh, um, yeah, you know, now that he is the leader. Mm. In fact, that it was he's his father never looted any money from the nation. And it was it was it was actually the gold that they found. Um, and right. 
you know, I think we're, we're a couple months into his rule and he, he hasn't started the gold distribution to the peasantry yet or announced it, but that just means that he's really, it's got a lot of gold he's got to collect. So it's, it's coming out there. Well, a lot of people think that the, the, a lot of the money that CAA got for his operations yeah. came from, from that gold. And, you know, John Singlob of the, the world Anti communist league was looking for it out there too. Oh yeah. But like, you know, the, the CIA's bait, the, the, the CIA had one of its biggest bases in the world in, in, in Tokyo Yes, during the Korean War and after. It was massive, massive CIA base based in Atsugi Air, Air Force Base near Tokyo. And, you know, that's where Lee Harvey Oswald was, I was about to say, working, yeah. right? A uh, very famous base. But, I mean, the CIA operations there were very – I mean, they're all over Asia, of course. You know, Korean War and then he's flying people into – North Korea into China and all this kind of stuff. You too, yeah. It was a massive, massive program. Mm-hmm. And, and the CIA, uh, you know, was, you know, they're the ones that funded the LDP at the very beginning. And and I don't know what the relationship is now, but they're certainly happy with what turned out, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming on. Before we go, real quick, do you have anything you want to plug? Or where well, can people find your work? Uh, actually, the best place is my website right now, which is timshorrock.com, T-I-M-S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K. Oh, we'll link to it. We'll, we'll get a little link, clicky link hyperlink in there. And, uh, I, you know, I also, I, I, I've written, I've written for a long, I wrote for a long time for the nation magazine. Mm. I haven't had anything there mm. for a while, but if you do Tim search, Tim Shorrock and the nation, you'll find my author's page and there are you know, dozens and dozens of articles going back to uh, late 1990s or even earlier on, the, on, the, on that, on the nation site. Uh, but timshorrock.com, will, I'm, I'm, I'm expanding it now. Uh, I'm going to link into a patron, Patreon soon. Uh, oh, but that's the best place Incredible. to reach me. And I've got a lot of my work on there and, you know, lots, lots of material up there. Especially, well, you know, I wrote a book about spies, right? Spies, spies for, for hire. hire. So, you know, intelligence, privatized intelligence, uh, you know, I still follow it. I haven't been writing about it so much, but there's a lot of material on my website about that. And a lot of people go on just for that. Well, we would love to have you back on to talk about that sometime, too, because that is also a very big interest to us. Yes. It's a bizarre industry, but it's very, it it is pretty interesting. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you. You know, I'll tell you tell you something that scares me more than the Moonies. What? Spoonies. How long have you been holding on to that one? I just came up with that. Really? Yeah, I just came up with that. Mm. Um I, I, fuck, I didn't even read. I have a book here by the Ad Hoc Committee of Members of the Unification Church from 79 when the congressional investigation was happening. I got to tell you, you love an ad hoc committee. I love an ad hoc committee. All committees should be ad hoc. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is ad hoc. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the report, I guess the congressional report came out on Halloween, which is very spooky. Um, I am afraid to go to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. I feel like I, yeah, I might have to become a yakuza if I. Get I don't it. think that that is. I feel like they'd be like, "What? That's like." I don't really see you in Japan. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't really. But I could see you in much. China. You could. I could easily go to China. Yeah. Yeah, I, think you I would should. love it. I'm going to. go. We there. should go. 
Yeah, all right. We should go. We should just do this podcast from China. In China. China. We yeah, should let's... just move to China. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe we just go next year and we like go see what's up. Like four months out there? Yeah, we go say, just... hey, hey, you, how is it? How's it going out here? Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, that'd be probably pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. But we could just go. I would love to go to China. Yeah. And never leave. Yeah, that'd be fine with me. Um, I love you. Everyone, my name is Liz. Sorry, I was on the phone with China. Um, my name is Brace, and we are joined by producer Young Chomsky. <laughs> and the podcast is called... True or not. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Let's go to Jeffrey Epstein.